Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Well, I got the, we wanted to talk about messaging a couple of times this year, and boy, howdy, did last week give us a, a lot of uh, fat to chew on there. Uh, this has never been one of my strong suits. Most of my career, uh, we sent out nothing but text messages, and you guys on the air had to fill in the gaps with your graphics. We had no capability of doing that until the internet became the, the way to go, and I've never really become... Uh, what I would call an expert on, on messaging because of that. So today we have uh, three people who are experts on messaging, whether they believe it or not. Uh, we have uh, Alan Strum, who's the chief meteorologist, WEAR-TV in Pensacola. Uh, in 2004, he had the opportunity to play a critical role in messaging to uh, our friends in the Florida Panhandle, just what was getting ready to happen to him from Hurricane Ivan. And he's a, a, a SEAL carrier from both the weather, National Weather Association and uh, AMS. Uh, Brian Norcross, uh, he, uh, he and I have chatted many times over the last at least 25 years. Uh, he's currently working on Fox Weather as a contributor and hurricane uh, specialist. Uh, he has a, a five-decade career focusing on things in the tropics and got a real kickstart in the in the. Uh, business when he had to live through one Hurricane Andrew in 1992. It has a lot of uh, insightful thoughts on how messaging works and doesn't work with the general population. And the third man up in the in the category is uh, Rob Perillo, and he's the chief meteorologist, KATC-TV, uh, Acadiana's news channel. And uh, he's got 33 years of experience and uh, and uh, the last four or five years, we probably felt like another 30 years in there. And he's smiling today because he hadn't had to work a hurricane this season, which is a nice relief in that. Uh, we also have uh, Tim. He's, a, he's our expert down in the lower Rio Grande Valley and Alex in San Antonio. And uh, so we've got a lot of people that can talk about messaging. So, uh, Alan, I'll let you start off first and uh, give us uh, uh, some of your thoughts on the uh uh, the challenges we have in messaging to the public. Thanks very much, Bill. It's good to see you too. I think it may, maybe the last time one of the conferences or in the Bahamas years ago, we all remember those days talking hurricanes down there when the weather was nice in spring outside of hurricane season. Yeah, messaging, uh, of course, yeah, and more, most recently it has been tough uh, with, uh, of course, you bring on, you know, you're talking about text back in the day, and now we bring on all the social media, and that's where a lot of the messaging is coming from. And I think at least one good thing is people are asking, they will say, Alan, I saw this, uh, is this right? And then you have to kind of straighten it out, and it makes me think about when people joke to us, weather folks, they say, ah, you know, you're only right 50% of the time, and you still get paid. You know, we hear that. Uh, quite a bit, of course. Uh, but I always say, well, we're, we're always right, but you just need to ca- catch the update, you know, and the update might come moments before the actual weather event. And, and I think in this case, where some of these messages are getting out and people are getting old information. And what's important is that they get the most recent information uh, in, you know, a timely manner and, uh, and end up receiving what's the, what, what the best information is in that case. Uh, so I think with social media, it, they end up uh, oftentimes seeing something that maybe 
old, um, and then that causes a problem. And of course, there are folks out there that are actually picking up this, you know, these pieces of information or model runs, putting them out there. And then people are seeing, say, one run of a model and it gets spread and it gets blown up and it's uh, it's just not uh, it's not good information. It's not accurate. Um, and it causes people to think something's going to happen that's uh, not necessarily uh, going to happen. But, yeah, the message we do, our broadcasts, of course, are, are live. So uh, we're on the air live, uh, you know, each day passing along the, the most uh, critical recent information. And I think it still is a very good source uh, for people to get their information. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, okay, Brian, let, let's hear some of your thoughts. Well, uh, I have two, uh, what would you call them? They're not slogans, mantras, uh, wise sayings that I that I kind of go by. One is uh, be certain about the uncertainty. And what I mean by that is when you communicate when the storm is well offshore and kind of coming in the direction, uh, you know, we can't tell exactly where it's going to go. So, but we can tell that there is a threat. And in my mind, this is what was missing in Ian. So when, when, when there is a lot of uncertainty, we can be certain about the threat five days out in Southwest Florida or in Tampa or in Tallahassee, you know, was there a threat? Yes. So you can talk affirmatively about the threat. So really what you do uh, well in advance is forecast the threat, not forecast the storm, and to try and get the messaging away from that. Because the other, my my favorite line I ever said, and I put at the bottom of my email for years and years, is precision is the enemy of accuracy. And I think what's happened in the modern world is we get so wound up in the models and this and that and the details and this and that, that we forget the threat. And that's what happened, you know, and and unfortunately, that's what happened to public officials in Florida. I mean, for God's sakes, the director of FEMA doesn't understand the the difference between the cone and the threat and, and all that on the Sunday talk shows last Sunday. So, you know, this this is the the problem, is I, in my mind, is that we got to get people uh, out of all the minutia and into are we threatened or not, and you know what what kind of threat do we have to prepare our minds for? So, in Southwest Florida, they didn't prepare, prepare anybody's mind. They didn't. They, in fact, they just did the opposite leading up to it. They kind of played it down. Uh, and I mean, they in the in the broad sense, not talking about just the local officials, but it, you know, kind of it was played down. And where there was plenty of threat to talk about, <laughs> and and if they had kind of prepared folks mentally, you wouldn't have this. Oh, well, they ordered an evacuation, but it was too late. I, I you know, they people just started thinking about it then, and I couldn't get it together, and I couldn't this and then and. And, you know, and all that had to happen in one day when that should have been a five-day process to lead people to that point. Excellent idea there. Uh, okay, Rob, what uh, what's your addition to this before uh, I start yeah, finally? I have many thoughts, and, you know, it comes back to uh, looking at the cone and the center line of the cone and the messaging two days before the storm. It was going to be a Tampa-St. Pete-Sarasota uh, storm. And um, we have to think back how people consume their information. You hear that 
And then you're thinking, well, gee, I'm going to be okay here down in Fort Myers. Uh, but, and, and, and it's kind of a media thing, but everybody kind of jumps on the wagon for a full day. It was nothing but Tampa, Tampa, Tampa. You have all the coverage out of Tampa, St. Pete, uh, this bay. It hasn't been hit in over 100 years. They were talking it was going to be a 100-year storm, whereas what I think got lost in the mix, well, if you're thinking about pure wind and where the wind is going to go, yeah, Tampa was, you know, ground zero two days out. But uh, what we did not do is uh, transmit or it got lost in the translation that there are so many hazards with this storm. One, it was going to be moving slower. Two, we knew it was going to be a Category 3, 4 storm, and we knew it was going to go through that uh, rapid intensification cycle once again post Cuba already it was a very well developed system even after it departed Cuba that it had plenty of opportunity to intensify and that we probably didn't break down the hazards well enough on where okay even if this it's Tampa Fort Myers is going to have a huge storm surge and a storm surge with a lot of uh, current and you know if I were thinking about that and I was a local official I would not be playing that down and, uh, you know, there's going to be – there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, and it's easy for us to all do that. But, uh, you know, this is an all-hazard system, and whether that center made it north of Tampa or not, uh, you look at the areas that were so hard impacted, and, yeah, they had wind down in Fort Myers as well, but uh, you're looking at that water that came in and that prolonged fetch over the ocean was going to drive that water inland. And, you know, we were talking about this before the show. Uh, you have a culture in South Florida and that part of Florida that has very little hurricane experience, where as in Louisiana, we've had four or five storms in the last three or four years, similar intensity, Laura, Ida, um, and everybody knows to get the heck out of uh, harm's way along the coast if you're in a flood zone. And I think that messaging was uh, too late. And I don't think the messaging was strong enough to say, if you don't get out and the storm should come your way, there's going to be nobody to help you for days. And here we are a week after the storm, and there's still active rescue, uh, search and rescue going on, which uh, makes your heart drop uh, mm -hmm. after we've seen so many storms like this. And unfortunately, Gulf of Mexico storms, you don't have a 60 or 72-hour time frame to make your plans, you have 36 to 48 hours and you have to uh, jump a very conservative route and uh, get people out uh, as soon and as quickly as possible. And in Florida, it's a much different situation than Louisiana, obviously. But uh, um, and, and when you mandate these evacuations, you are putting people in harm's way getting on the road, especially elderly people, people with special needs, but all the more reason to get those folks out in an earlier time frame. Great stuff. You guys covered most of the things I was going to stick in there. One thing I was thinking uh, uh, when I look back at this is uh, perhaps some of the, the messaging myths would be, uh, you look at the recent big storms that made landfall, Ida, Laura, Delta, Michael, they were all approaching perpendicular coastline. So a 10 degree shift in the mo uh, forward motion of the storm is not a large shift in the area that's going to be impacted. Uh, perhaps people were, uh, I still think there's too much of the, if even we don't draw a skinny black line, people still think of the storm as a line and a point on the coast. 
Uh, I heard that over and over again on the national broadcast. It, Ian is going to hit in Tampa, you know, and that immediately, if you're not in our line of work, you're, you're a citizen living somewhere in Naples, Florida, say that doesn't pay weather isn't their bag. Uh, you hear it's going to hit in Tampa. You're not going to, uh, by definition, I think you're not going to be all that aware. Uh, another thing I think might have been a problem with this storm is the most recent experience in the Fort Myers area and it was Charlie, a totally different storm. One-fourth the size of Ian did not produce a storm surge of any consequence. And I think a lot of people probably assume, well, it's a Cat 4. We had a lot of superficial damage to win. We got better built house now. It's going to be a windstorm. We can ride this out. So uh, those are a couple of the other challenges uh, I, I see there. Uh, so well, guys got any ideas on, on, on other ways we might be able to break the skinny black line syndrome? Can I add something to what you said there, Bill? Yeah. Uh, well, the, it's it's actually much worse than that because after the fact, since this has happened, the I mean public officials up to the governor and like I said even the FEMA director were defending the decisions made in Lee County, uh, saying well the storm was forecast to go to Taylor County which is up by Tallahassee, right? Even though Fort Myers was on the edge of the cone, right? So so the, this sort of misperception that the center of the cone, I mean, wasn't just pre-storm. It continues to this day, uh, which is wild craziness. I mean, it's not like, the, you know, I mean, Florida has one of the most sophisticated and talented group of emergency managers of any state in, in the United States. And I 100% guarantee you that people in emergency management in Tallahassee understand what the threat zone idea is all about and effects outside the cone and all that. So, so you have that going on. And then you have the other issue in that, uh, you know, the national hurricane center, as you know, puts out not just the storm surge forecast, but they, they provide the odds of uh, various levels of storm surge, you know, for every point on the coast, you, you can, you know, the odds of some kind of storm surge, so the Sunday before uh storm hit Wednesday afternoon, on that Sunday, they had a 60% chance of a six-foot storm surge in Lee County, was what the, the P-surge indicated. Okay. So that's way within their published protocols for ordering an evacuation of zone A. So in in Lee County, they were so wildly focused on the cone that they didn't even, you know, they ignored the, the their whole protocol system for knowing, for using the odds and knowing when to order evacuation and and all of that. And that was on Sunday, and they didn't even talk about it for the first time until Tuesday morning. Mm. So so it was it was a complete breakdown and the understanding of the National Hurricane Center information and the use of the uh, storm surge odds and how that relates to evacuation orders. And, and I mean, it's stunning, actually, that that given everything, you know, <laughs> how, how much effort does the National Hurricane Center put into training people and and so forth? It's, you know, it's vast. And uh, that that 
hasn't permeated decision makers is really stunning to me. Well, uh, I'll just throw a few more observations of an old man in there. Nobody wants to do an evacuation. Right, true. People live there. Uh, least of all the officials, there used to be a saying over here for that they teach the uh, state emergency manager would teach the new mayors and county judges is a hurricane's coming and there's four possibilities. Uh, one uh, is forecast to miss here and it actually misses. That's pretty good. You'll get reelected after that. <laughs> it's forecast to miss here, but now it hits. Uh, you probably won't get reelected. Mm-hmm. It's it's forecast to uh, uh, hit here, uh, and it does hit here, but you forgot to tell them to do anything, you're going to lose the election. Mm-hmm. But guess what? It's forecast to come here, and it hits here, and you did all the right things. You're still going to lose the election, so do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it's very hard, I think, for even people in a decision-making mode that are trained to do that, to make those difficult decisions, knowing the what Rob pointed out about, uh, you know, people lose their lives on evacuation. You're talking about a lot of old people. And down there, it's a, I don't know what the clearance times are now, but they impressed on me that it would take over 60 hours to yeah, get it's like 60 ideal, hours, yeah. ideal evacuation in, in that area. And, and as demographic as there's a lot of old people. Mm-hmm. We have the same thing here in Galveston Bay. And I used to use the, the, the evacuation training. A simplified thing was, we're going to tell you to evacuate, uh, say, four times over your lifetime here. Three of them, the hurricane won't hit. I can't tell you which one. <laughs> so you got to go, you know, and you try to keep it simple like that because there's just so many complicating details that people have to think about. Well, one thing that comes back to me is, you know, back in the 90s and 80s, I can remember Hurricane Ivan impacting uh, Allen's area and uh, seeing some of the presentation going back to the mid 90s was the mantra was always flee from the water, not from the wind. And um, I think you need to flee from the wind as well when you get these category fours. But that's a whole nother story, a whole nother uh, avenue we can go down. And uh, just even with a three or four foot surge, you knew those islands were going to get cut off no matter what. And uh, let me just share. Um, let me just share the the forecast cone um, and looking at the graphics here. Um, you know, it, it, this is just a loop of the, the, the forecast cone, and obviously we're at the end of the, the loop here. But uh, you were in the right-hand side of that forecast line. Now, we can go on about talking about the forecast line, but you knew that entire west coast of Florida was under the gun for a major surge. So there had to have been some sort of disconnect of understanding what kind of surge we were going to have, and how that was going to impact our arteries going in and out of the area. So, um, you know, you got to give kudos to the National Hurricane Center. Um, it's it, it, The information certainly got lost in the transmission uh, to the locals, especially as you went farther down to Naples, all the way even down to Naples. And that cone, uh, again, a major hurricane, uh, 50, 100 miles just to the west of you, uh, that is for sure. And, you know, the, the surge is already going to be baked in no matter uh, if the center goes up by the big bend of Florida. We knew it was going to be a, a slow-moving storm, uh, that this was going to be uh, something that w- was needed to be reckoned with. And, and um, 
And just looking at this surge here, um, can you guys see this surge as well? Yes. This is the time lapse uh, uh, from Max Olson storm chasing here, uh, just showing how quickly it goes downhill. And I think every emergency manager needs to see what a storm surge looks like. And there you go. You have it uh, looks like four to five foot swells. You have a, a eight or nine knot current uh, with those swells. Uh, it it's it's and and there's a, a level of disbelief uh, that we all have when we're looking at a storm. Well, it, it's it's going to affect someone, but it's not going to hit here. Uh, that's not going to happen here. It's going to be somebody else's problem. And um, you know. It's, it's hard to put this in the realm of, of what people can fathom. You can't talk about a storm surge unless you show a video, something like this. Hey, this is a 8 to 12-foot surge here. Look at the water. Look at the waves. You probably have high water marks in the 15-foot range. Nobody's going to survive that if you're on a first-floor uh, building along the coast. And this is at Fort Myers Beach, uh, you know, one road in. So uh, really horrific um, on knowing that and my, my, I had a pit in my stomach scarring Monday knowing that uh, there were going to be a lot of inexperienced people that you hear after the storm. They say, I had no idea it was going to be like that. We thought we could ride it out in the house, but we didn't know there would be a ripping current through our home and four or five feet of water. Uh, coming on in. And then you saw the pictures uh, yesterday, the day before, this uh, gentleman who rescued his uh, infirm mom, and she was up to her neck uh, in water in the house. Um, uh, and and part of our education from starting today, going to next hurricane season, is to be able to show you what it looks like along the coast and, and this storm surge threat. And then you can see the water going down. But I thought this was just a, a, a great illustration of just about what any surge will do on the Gulf Coast, a very uh, shallow water Gulf Coast uh, where uh, you can get a very large pileup. And especially with that storm that was moving in, and that's what we found with Laura compared to Hurricane Rita and Hurricane Ike, we had much bigger surges in Ike and Rita, slower moving storms than Laura, who was just as powerful and had arguably a larger surge right near the center of it, but it didn't spread out or push as far inland because of the time uh, the the storm moved along at a good clip. Laura moved at 16 versus uh, when you have these storms that are moving at 8 to 12. And um, who was on the Weather Channel says, yeah, we're dealing with hurricane slow. That should be another category we talk about and another impact maker uh, when it comes to the storm. Mm, yeah. The, uh, shifting gears just slightly in there because you showed the cone on there. Uh, Alan, uh, uh, when, when you're showing the forecast track of the storm, do you use the same uh, parameters for creating the cone that you show on air as the Hurricane Center? Yes, it, it looks uh, it looks about the same as what the National Hurricane Center shows. So it's but it it's uh, it has a, a, a diff, different colors and a little bit of a different look uh, that we you know it's run through our vendor, uh, which which then spits out the same cone though. And uh, generally, and I tell people too that when we are in those situations, I'm not 
I'm not giving necessarily like my own, like, hey, I think it's going to go to the right of this or to the left. Or uh, I'm using what the National Hurricane Center uh, is is putting out there because you, you all have a fleet of, of people working on this uh, and putting it together. And uh, that that's what I want to pass along as the official track. You know, I was thinking about some of the messaging as well. And it is there are still people that don't understand the difference between a watch and a warning. So it's almost like if we could get some of these messages out to them outside of the hurricane season or outside of when it's, you know, bearing down on, on the area that it's hitting. I don't know that that's an easy thing to do to educate folks on that, but, uh, but it's something I think about, you know, if we could kind of just, just train folks as to what's going on and every storm is different. You know, when you look at Charlie and you look at Ian and these different storms, you know, and, uh, we're up here in the panhandle of Florida. Back in 2020, we had Hurricane Sally hit. It was a real deal storm. It was Category 2 hurricane, but that was one, too, that we thought, hey, this is Rob's storm. Rob, those folks in Louisiana can have this one, no problem. And then it ends up, you know, turning back this way. The uh, the hurricane warning was issued on a Monday at 4 o'clock. We're in Central Time, so it was a 4 o'clock advisory. The warning was issued, and then the storm ended up being sort of a Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning overnight event. And nobody evacuated. I mean, everybody stayed, and there were a lot of people that wished they had evacuated. And we had we hadn't hadn't had really a a hard hit since uh, you know the mid two thousands back with Ivan and Dennis in two thousand four and two thousand five. So you know there are a lot of people that are new to this part of Florida and the Panhandle that uh, you know they thought that was that had to have been the worst storm that had ever hit the area. Uh, you know, with Sally, and of course it was a serious storm. But uh, that message and and that you know that. That was one of those slow movers. We were in the cone, uh, but nobody nobody left. Nobody was really told to leave. Uh, but I do think when the hurricane warning is issued, I mean, that does hopefully let people know, hey, this is the real deal. You know, this is the, you have a potential for hurricane conditions. And, hey, here's what we can expect. And maybe we, we show uh, videos like Rob just showed and say yeah. this is what happened when this type of storm hit this area. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh- What's the normal lead time on the on the planning there to to pull an evacuation? How much advance notice do they have to give to ensure a successful evacuation? Um, well, here I think it's a little bit different because you can go east and west and you can go north. Um, so we've got we've got more options to get out. I, I'm not sure what the emergency managers would do. You know, our, we have barrier islands here that are in the A evacuation zones. Uh, so they're you know, and, and even some of the areas close to town are in an A. Uh, you know, so we, getting getting people off the beach during the summer uh, is you, usually when, when the weather starts getting bad, you don't have the tourists coming in as much. So that's um, they're sort of already out, but you got to get people across the bridges uh, from the barrier islands, you know, into town and then out on Interstate 10 and up Interstate 65 or whichever direction uh, they're going to go. But it seems like with Sally back in 2020, uh, it it. Also, maybe it wasn't that it, that there necessarily needed to be an evacuation. Just people thought, ah, oh, well, we'll just we'll just kind of it's a you know it's not a major hurricane. We'll just kind of we'll we'll let this one. We'll see where it's going to hit, and we'll just we'll, we'll wait this one out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Rob, do, uh, do you do anything different with a cone than than what's currently being done? No, I I you know I I try to stay with the cone. I try to show uh, radius of tropical storm force winds, kind of. Uh, if it's coming this way, do it that I like that uh, most reasonable time of arrival of hurricane force winds. And I'm still a line guy. I know there's a lot of a uh, lot of debate on whether to show the line because the hurricane is not a point. Uh, but um, 
I like showing the line because one, when I took it away, I had a lot of people complaining. They wanted to know if the line shifted west or east. I can't tell. Uh, so um, I, I still use it. I don't know if we're doing more harm than good with that. Uh, but when I talk about the storms, I talk about hurricane conditions will be likely within the cone, maybe mostly on the right side of the cone for us, but certainly within that cone diameter. Uh, and even when it comes down to the uh, 11th hour where we're showing where the storm is going to go, I make my line nice and thick to, to uh, parity where I think the, uh, if, if it's a 30 or 20 mile wide eye, I make my line 20 miles wide to show where the cone, uh, where the, the highest destructive winds may be. Uh, so that's kind of when you're zoomed in. So, um, I stay consistent with the national hurricane center, uh, like to show the models and, and, um, and this is a little bit of a promotion for WSI's graph model. Uh, it may not be the best day-to-day operating model, but boy, it's been a very good model and outperformed every other model when it comes to hurricanes going back to the 2020 season, 21. And uh, the graph 72 hours out had this system going in uh, just uh, right near Fort Myers, never deviated from that point. And even when it made landfall, uh, crossing over Orlando and exiting close to the Space Coast rather than up toward Daytona Beach. So uh, um, I kind of try to value add that and show what the model is showing. You know, we'll, uh, uh, two or three days out, I'll be showing the odds of uh, what tropical storm force winds, hurricane force winds, but those are misleading 72 hours out because those, those numbers increase incrementally as the storm gets closer. So I try to show model data on, on the what ifs to, uh, and, and it's not the best looking graphic, but uh, show town by town, what you can expect wind wise, and then try to translate that storm surge. You can't spend enough time on that storm surge map uh, explaining it, uh, showing, hey, everything in red here is going to be inundated by nine feet of water. And, uh, yeah, that shifted a little bit farther to the north, but there was always five or six feet of water heading for Fort Myers uh, in that area. And, unfortunately, it was a lot higher than that um, uh, a couple of days later. But I still uh, draw the cone and, and try to stay consistent with the National Hurricane Center. Um, I won't say – what I think it might do, but I, I will say what the pitfalls, what could go wrong? Okay, this is what could go wrong. What could go right? Uh, lay those all out. And Bill, if I can add to that too on that graph model, yeah, back in 2020 with, with Hurricane Sally, uh, that one had us as a, uh, I mean, it, it was a dead hit for the Pensacola area, and I hesitated to show it. I'm like, I, you know, this, I'm not sure it's responsible for me to throw this in the mix of all of my graphics and with all the other models. So I, I held back. Now, I actually saved it, though. I, 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 it's sitting on my desktop, so I have it there. And I think back to myself, man, that's just that's wild how, you know, and then it, obviously Sally did end up being a direct hit for us up here in this part of the panhandle. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We remember so, that, uh, that so, graph called Laura straight on, Delta straight on, the experience I've had with it. And I remember it calling that turn to, toward your world because Sally was heading – straight for southeast louisiana and that was the forecast track at that time so wow so i mix the the cone and the models so i show show the cone 
so I have some thoughts about the, the cone and the use of the cone. But generally, when the storm is a, a ways away from the coast, I show the cone. And then I put the models over top of the cone, sometimes including the graph model, to show this, like, don't focus on the center of the cone, right? And 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 then I'll sh actually show the the uh, operational models, and then the just coloring all the ensembles the same to show diversity and and the the uncertainty. You know, the idea is how much uncertainty is there. Well, look at they go everywhere, so there's a lot of uncertainty in this. Now, one of the weird things about this storm was. There was all this uncertainty, and then everything came together and aimed at Tampa, and then there was all this uncertainty again, right? It was a interesting thing with the models. So, so I tend to show the models with the cone, but in my mind, the cone works. I mean, I created this, you know, in the nineties, but the the cone works great when the storm is well offshore. When the storm is getting near the coast, the cone doesn't work well because the narrow kind of neck of the cone is, you know, is just worse about the fact that everything happens outside or a tremendous amount happens outside. So in the two days leading up to the the uh, landfall, it's not that I don't show it, but I don't make it anywhere near as prominent uh, because two days out, then you're starting to get watches and warnings and, mm -hmm. and I tend to use more the the uh, tropical storm force wind field and then i use the what you know the word is terrible i don't you know meteorological words can be horrible the storm force wind which i call hurricane force gusts in that middle range and then the hurricane force sustained right but i use that those things to show how much bigger the storm is. And if it were to go down the middle of the cone, it would be here. So let's imagine it actually being wider than that. And of course, those things are actually bigger than the, the that's just somewhere in those quadrants, it reaches that. So they work reasonably well for putting, adding some uncertainty to the size of the wind field. Um, so anyway, point is that that I do something different as it gets closer to land, because the cone doesn't work as well uh, by itself. Yeah, I, I find a when I, when I show the the graphic that has all the different track models on there, you get a paralysis in decision making. There's just, mm -hmm. it's too much uncertainty to do any good for you. Tim, I've been leaving you out of the discussion. You probably got <laughs> all kinds of questions, and maybe the viewers also. So. Uh, it's been a terrific discussion. It's been fun to just sit back and be a fly on the wall and listen to you guys because so much knowledge and information here. And I think I think that's one of the things that that's one of the issues is uh, this group of five guys, I'm six guys here, however many there are. Um, there's a lot of Alex's on my screen. Um, however many of us there are, we've got a wealth of knowledge. We know this stuff. We knew what was coming. You know, Rob, you knew. Brian, you knew. Alan, you knew. Bill, we all knew what was coming, but but still somehow. People stayed on Sanibel. Still, somehow, people stayed Captiva. You know, they didn't Fort Myers Beach. They stayed. And and so somewhere that message was lost. Somewhere it was lost. Where was that? There's a great conversation going on on its own on our BoxCast feed right now. And I can't, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but a lot of great comments, you know, talking about how uh, in Tampa they did it right and Fort Myers, Lee County did it wrong. Um, and, you know, we've had that discussion. Um but I'll ask just a couple of the questions because they, they're a couple of very specific questions. Let me ask this one. Casper just wants to know, 
What are your thoughts on the consistency of the Canadian models throughout Ian? Is that a negative influence on the consensus models that help keep the NHC center line weighted to the West? Since they noted in the discussion they were following the consensus models, um, should those models continue to be in the consensus going forward? Well, I don't know who wants brings, to jump on that. that. Go ahead. That brings up an interesting point. I think the last good year that the, the Canadian model had in the tropics was 05. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the Canadian model is not included in the consensus. Yeah, though. Right, not in the consensus, right. But, uses, I think but in one the time process. Was, anyway, it's not any longer. The COAMPS is uh, included in, well, in the TVCA, TVCN consensus. The, uh, the, the interesting um, the factor is, you know, the GFS was a great performer in 2020, 2021, and this year it has not. And you, you have all those GSF, uh, GFS ensembles uh, weighting that cone uh, to the left. Uh, so that was a little bit of a factor. Craig Setzer put out a, a little bit of a blurb on Twitter about it. Um, and, you know, and somebody commented, well, the GFS wound up killing people. It's like, well, we have to evaluate all models. And the, the model and the forecast track that the Hurricane Center was following was weighted uh, toward more toward the center right of the, that, those model clusters. Uh, you always have to look at the meteorology around us. So uh, um, to a certain degree, we did have um, the GFS myths lead us a little bit because there were a lot of solutions. And, and even though it came back to the east a number of times on a number of model runs, it came back. Uh, raising more questions back to the West. And that's why I think we uh, had a little bit of a mixed message that, well, these conditions can be found all along the, you know, from the big bend of Florida down to extreme Southwest Florida, including, you know, close to the keys as well. So um, I think that may have muddled our message a little bit, but I, I think it all comes down to is, and, and we didn't discuss this, but it's, it's personal responsibility on understanding what the threat is to my home. We have all these tools available, uh, but do uh, the, does the general public have the tools and the wherewithal to determine what kind of threat zone they are in? They, they may not get information from their local Met. They may not get information from Fox or, or the Weather Channel. Uh, they may be just surfing online and looking at a day-old post on where the storm is going to go and somebody's being specific about it. Uh, so it's it's about not only getting the information out that people can understand, but giving them the tools to determine what their risk is. And part of it is, you, uh, you know, I, I think we have a culture that people are just waiting for you to tell me exactly what's going to happen to me, where that's never going to happen. You have to take personal responsibility on understanding uh, what the threats are at our house and and. And we hit on it all every year at every hurricane special going into every hurricane season. Be prepared for a storm. Uh, expect one to come your way. If you don't have it, then your hurricane kit's ready for next year, and you can use the stored water or canned goods that you're going to have and have a party that year or just save it for next year. So uh, it, it, it's a myriad of social uh, connections and you know this is where the, the the science of meteorology and tropics are and and in general whether you're talking about climate or you're talking about specific weather events on how we can uh, move the needle for people to to understand a little bit more so I think a lot of people are just waiting for Apple to or or their cell phone to just alert them when there's a warning at their specific location and by then it's way too late the uh, I just want to put a little caveat on it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of our most common 
uh, statements when we have a storm approaching the coast is uh, listen to your local officials and be ready to act when told to do so. So hmm. uh, that would be a normal way for people to to respond to a hurricane threat. You, we're telling them that listen to your local officials. So uh, <laughs> I actually, personally, I would do the same thing that you just recommended. I, I want to be able to jump the gun. I'm, I'm risk averse, so I'm going to go early anyway. So, But not everybody's in that mode. Yeah, so that was a problem is that the officials were giving this contrary set of information. In fact, even the governor was saying, yes, in the order of evacuation, not everybody really wants to. And, you know, they would kind of, it wasn't, if an evacuation is ordered, it's because there's a threat of you dying if you don't respond, right? It was very, even the when they finally did it, which was way too late, they finally made the first announcement Tuesday morning. It was even then, it was, oh, it was a little bit soft and, uh, you know, and even then people could be forgiven for not not responding uh, to that. So two, two historical points. One, to me, which even makes this, so much more bizarre in the decision-making in Southwest Florida is they lived through Hurricane Charlie, which drove down the right side of the cone, right? It was supposed to go to Tampa. Everybody was in Tampa. FEMA was in Tampa. The governor, Governor Bush back then was in Tampa. The media was in Tampa. And so everybody's focused on Tampa. And then Charlie came up went, I mean, it was so identical to this thing that it's it's just unbelievable to me that experienced people couldn't imagine a storm going down the right side of the cone. And then this storm is this giant storm, you know, multiple times the size of, uh, of uh, Charlie. The other uh, historical one is Sandy, which to me, if I were an emergency manager, I would have been looking at that and studying that and understanding that I actually testified before the New York city city commission after Sandy about the messaging that came out of the Bloomberg administration. The Bloomberg administration had these brilliant people. And I mean, these are smart, smart people. And it's this, you know, extremely sophisticated emergency management um, office there. But And they got themselves all wound around the wheel of post-tropical. It's post-tropical, so the storm surge isn't really going to be the same. And they just... I mean, you had one to explode, but but what they didn't do is they didn't go when the threat first became possible. They didn't go on and say, hey, we've got a possible threat and then then updated each day. And up and, and I went through this whole thing for the for the city commission. And so to me, this was this should have started the previous Friday in southwest Florida in the most vulnerable place um next to Tampa, but really even more vulnerable than than the population centers in Tampa because it doesn't have to be quite so precise in Southwest Florida for that to all get flooded. In Tampa, you have to get the angles just right to get get or wrong to get the the big flood. You know, they, they should have gone on and said, we have this potential. We live in the most vulnerable place on the coast. You know, just get your mind around this. And then here's the update and here's the update. And they didn't do it. Same thing that didn't happen in New York. Um, in New York City, they ended up with, you know, scores of people dead in storm surge and ambulances and fire trucks and all this in the storm surge, which is just unbelievable. <laughs> you know, that that and not to mention, I don't know, 250 taxis and 
and whole fleets of train cars and all this in the storm surge when all of us knew that storm surge was a potential monstrous threat there in the bite between New Jersey and, and New York. So I don't know, you know, the fact that those lessons were not learned and digested to me is it just hard to um, kind of unthinkable actually. And one of the major television stations, I mean, this was permeated the, you know, the sort of established society, you know, the Wink TV, though, one of the, the legacy TV station, one of the great TV stations in Southwest Florida had a studio right on the water and no plan to evacuate and no plan to operate outside of that. How is it possible? I mean, it just, it seems unimaginable to those of us that, you know, live with hurricane planning and backup plans and imagining, imagining these things. Hmm. Let me, let me switch gears just a little bit because we got a couple of questions coming in. I want to ask them because they're important. We're going to run out of time. Uh, James who's in Southwest Florida asked this question early on. He said in today's social media age, uh, and our advance in messaging, how do we weed out the false information, all the rumors? He said they had some really dangerous rumors here in Southwest Florida. And about the time he asked that question on the feed, a friend of mine here, I don't know if you'll be able to see this on my phone, sent that. Um, he says, oh, look, are we going to have an October surprise in South <laughs> Texas, you know, up there? There's one line feeding to South Texas. Do we need to start thinking about this? It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, how do you weed out the, the good stuff from the bad? I mean, where do you begin? Right. Well, one thing they have to get the clipper model off of those model plats. Uh, plots. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, you know. I think we had it with Ian. The clipper model had one line going to southeast Louisiana, and it was the clipper. It's like, why do we even show that? That should be for meteorologists only, because that some people react off of that one line that's coming to them. You know, when was the last time you looked at the Clipper model, even looked at it, even glanced at it, even, you know, said, well, okay, it, that's stuck, it stuck Never. out on somebody applauded that. Never. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you get, you get new people uh, in your line of work who have not been trained in the tropics and they'll see that there's no, there's nothing on that product that discriminates what's good and what's bad. Yeah. And yeah, for the record, uh, for those who are watching this, the Clipper model is a model that it's not even a model. It says, okay, a storm is here by the keys. It's October 1st. This is where the storm, uh, the average storms go. It has no meteorology built into it whatsoever. So to me, it's pretty useless other than, well, let's see what the storms did in the past as a meteorological curiosity. Um, and the, the, the only one other item I, I'd, I'd like to uh, add is um, the messaging with regard to the messaging on this storm is the nonverbal communication. Uh, if you turned on the TV and watched everybody covering the storm or online on Monday, everybody was in Tampa St. Pete. So <laughs> the sound off. You're not providing any meteorological information. You glance up the TV, it's like, well, they're still up in Tampa. I guess it's going that way. Uh, so that's another thing that we always have to consider um, uh, when trying to get that information out. Yeah, there's everybody's in Tampa, but you know what? The problem's going to be Tampa on southward uh, and reiterate that. Well, after Charlie, the camera was Craig Fugate or, or the governor or somebody said, Boy, do we learn a lesson. We are never going to, 
you know, where the, the landfall is supposed to be again. We thought that was going to be good for Tampa because we, we needed people to be aware, but they learned the lesson that, that you know, that was a, a very bad thing, and that lesson was obviously forgotten. You know, about all these models and stuff like that, I know it, they're a big pain in the ass because people, blah, blah, blah. I don't, but I don't think that's, that's an issue. I honestly don't because, the as, as Bill said, uh, and as Max Mayfield has said for many years, and the research has shown that people, when they have to make decisions, they're not they're not going to make a decision about whether they're going to evacuate their home off of some graphic they see on a phone, right? They want somebody to tell them and explain to them why they have to do it. They need the whole process to in order to make that monumental decision of of leaving home. And so, with that piece out of it and the, the and the information coming from all levels of, of government that was really mealy-mouthed and namby-pamby about evacuation that to me is the big lesson here no this is this is a life and death situation and don't dance around it not well not everybody's going to leave and no we're not going to drag you out and getting into all kind of stuff that doesn't have to do with life and death <laughs> right if this happens and you stay, you are you your life is in danger. <laughs> and don't get complicated about all the are are, are we gonna drag you out. No. It's the anyway, to, to me that that cut just cuts through all the crap of, of all the noise. Yes, you have noise leading up to it, but when the decision time comes, that's what you need is you need you need strong leadership and clear messages about about why we're making these decisions and, 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 you know, what you need to do. Exactly. Yeah. And I think in our own little, as TV meteorologists in our own little weather world, uh, we feel pretty comfortable with what we're passing along and, and usually fairly confident about it. Uh, but it, then in the news side of things, it's, it's a little bit different. We're kind of in this one little zone and you've got news folks reporting on it maybe differently, like the, uh, the example where they said, oh, Tampa direct hit uh, it hasn't been a hundred years. I mean, it's almost like this soundbite that gets carried on and on and on, you know, and just gets passed down and, and, and that gets used. And it's like, maybe, maybe we need to also message with the producers and the anchors to say, hey, look, uh, it's, it's more than that. Yeah, I do that every morning. Um, you know, we would have meetings every morning to talk about that. But you're absolutely right. They, it's it's hard to turn off the turn that off, and especially when you have public officials, you know, up to the governor that are doing that. Uh, so it's it is very hard to to um, keep the message uniform through the news organization. Coming to the end of our time, guys, it sounds like those are good rap statements, but if you've got something else you want to add before we close it out, uh, let me give you one last shot. <clears throat> We're going to finish up here at 11. So uh, let's start finishing the order we started. Let me go back to, to Alan. Anything else you want to add to, to what you said today? Great message today. Well, thanks very much for having me. Definitely enjoyed this conversation. This has been nice, and uh, it, it's funny how we were going through what was such a quiet season, and we, you know, all of a sudden we have one, and it ends up being what feels like a, a horrendously busy season. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we just need to keep working at getting that message out and getting it out as, as best we can. You know, folks are going to be getting information from all kinds of different places, um, and if we can be a, a major source of of that, then uh, we'll be better off. Thanks, Alan and Brian. Well, thanks, guys, for having me very much. Uh, um, 
So, I mean, I mean, I just hope that as a result of this, I mean, to me, this was a monstrous communications fiasco. And I just hope that, that uh, you know, somehow some entity, and I, I wish it were FEMA, I wish that FEMA had a, like a communications directorate, you know, just like they have, um, help me, Bill, my, I'm old and I'm forgetting the, the ETS, uh, the the division of responsibilities and emergency management. They divide emergency management yeah. by response, recovery, preparedness. Those yeah, and all, but, but they have within within anyway. FEMA sets up a structure within emergency management offices across the United States, and like there's power and there's schools and there's this and there's that. Anyway, they need one for communications, and FEMA needs to set this is the standard when a hurricane is threatening. This is what you do five days in advance. This is what you do four days, and some kind of structure so that. We all do it the same way uh, because people are not learning the lessons of past storms when we've had communications breakdown that cost people their lives. And I hope that, uh, you know, we can make progress in that area as a result of this. I mean, it'd be horrible if all this happened and we did not. Thanks, Brian. Rob? Uh, yeah, well, of course, you know, I'm a graphic guy. One last graphic, <laughs> you know, you just look at uh, – what has been the trend over the last five years? And we're talking six majors on the Gulf Coast from Harvey, Laura, Ida, Michael on over. And, and essentially, these are all storms, uh, with the exception of Ian, uh, all storms that were tropical depressions eight hours before they were major hurricanes and making landfall. So um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not a climate soliloquy here, but uh, I do want to make the point that we've seen these trends of these storms going into beast mode in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, we're averaging more than one per year. So um, hopefully we learn from the communication aspect of this. I hope the east coast of Florida has taken notice because you look at the major metro areas, your Houston's, your Tampa's, and your Miami's, and, and this storm, unfortunately, is going to go down in history is probably being uh, one of the most expensive and most costliest storms, whether you're talking about the fatalities and uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, we've had a number of storms such as um, Harvey, Michael, Laura, and Ida, all similar size, but doing a lot less damage because they impacted a lot less folks and a lot less infrastructure uh, and, and uh, many, many fewer households. So, um, this is, a, you know, it's another wake-up call that uh, this is the reality of living on the Gulf Coast. Whether there's a climate signal or not, that we're seeing more of these rapid intensifications on these storms close to the U.S. And uh, are they indeed moving slower? It seems like they're moving slower, and that was maybe a factor in Ian. Um, you know, I never say climate may have produced this storm or anything, but they're this storm also had some climate enhancements in it, and including the rainfall. Uh, you know, for a storm that was still moving at a good clip across Florida, we still saw up to 30-inch rainfalls, uh, and there was some pretty uh, serious flooding in and around the Orlando area on up. So um, it's something that uh, we have to work better on communicating all of these issues that we see with these major rapid intensification storms where the storm surge, whether the storm is weakening as it comes in or not, is already baked into the equation. You look at Rita, 
Katrina. Those storms were weakening, but they had, and that's why we separated the storm surge from the Saffir Simpson category. But uh, uh, these storms usually have a lot of a lot of pitfalls baked in, uh, and you never know how they're going to flesh out until the eleventh hour. And we certainly saw that with Ian. Thank you, Rob. Always good to see you, my friend. Bill, how about you? You've you've been listening to these guys on the TV side talk about things a little bit different perspective. What's your final thoughts today? Yeah, I I, I thought it was a, a great uh, discussion on some of the issues of communication uh, we have. There, I always come back to the part communication is a two way street. The receptor, the person in the public, the decision maker. Brock Long, uh, one of his uh, mantras when he was. Uh, a FEMA administrator was that the country is woefully lacking in a culture of preparedness. And I think that's one of the things that comes through in an event like this. And I think if we can find a key to, to change in that, turning the tide on that lack of preparedness, we'll go a long way to improve conditions for the future Ian's of the world. And a terrific discussion today, gentlemen. Thank you all so very much. And I encourage you guys that are on with us today to go look at the BoxCast feed, the Facebook feed, and look at the comments and read the questions And, and because it's been a great discussion going on on its own about the things you guys have been saying. Um, and, and everybody's very appreciative of, of, of what you said today. So thank you for that. So Rob, Brian, Alan, Bill, great program. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Reminder, these programs are brought to you by USAA. They've been with us from the very beginning. USAA, a proud sponsor of the National Tropical Weather Conference and NTWC Live. Also, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. We will be live in person. Hope to see all you guys back on South Padre Island in April. Uh, We encourage everybody to attend April at the uh, Marriott Courtyard on South Padre Island. Uh, The Weather Company, Walmart, Weather Boy, the City of Brownsville, the Port of Brownsville, Black Magic Design, all folks that make these a possibility. Next weekend's program, next week's program, next Wednesday's program, still up in the air. We're working on a couple of things, but we've got plenty to talk about. So I promise uh, when we come up with the program for next Wednesday, it's going to be one that you're going to want to see. So we encourage you to join us next Wednesday, 10 a.m. Central, here on NTWC Live. Until then, thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having us. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.